All right, let's turn to Jude, chapter 1, the only chapter. Jude 1 out of 1. Now Jude takes it to the next level. We've been talking for the last couple of weeks about the creepy men, those who creep in. They've crept into the body of Christ to bring their false teachings, their deception. It was a really big concern for Jude, and it's really been a concern for every generation of believers for the last 2,000 years. God is faithful. He does sustain his church, protect his church, but unfortunately there have been many deceivers along the way, and Jesus warns in the last days it's even going to get worse. Let's read verses 10 and 11. That'll be what we cover today. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts. In these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these ladies. We ask you to continue to guide them, direct them, bless their ministry and all those who work with them. Continue to provide the resources they need to continue to do the tremendous work they're doing in ministering to women, those who have already had abortions as well as those who have not. We thank you for the success rate and we pray that you continue to increase it that they could move up to a 100% success rate in preventing the abortion of unborn children. Lord, bless them, protect them, watch over them, use them mightily for your glory. We ask you to bless this time in your word now, in Jesus' name, amen. But these speak evil. Let me read the same verse from the NIV. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand, and what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. So now these men, who are they? They're the creeps of verse 4. Verse 4, for certain men have crept in unnoticed. A sneak is not a good sneak unless you don't know they're sneaking. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the these men of verse 10. These men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. And so they give an outward appearance of spirituality. They know the lingo and so forth. But they have no true spiritual insight, discernment, or wisdom. So whatever they don't understand, they simply use the smokescreen of mockery. You've heard me mention this before when people were challenging Benny Hinn on some of his really outrageous teachings, doctrines, practices, he said he would like to take his Holy Ghost machine gun and shoot them down. And for those, it's amazing how the secular world and the spiritual world par parallel one another. It's the same thing we see in the secular world, and it's really the work of the enemy that the enemy points the finger at you for what he's actually doing. And it happens in the secular world, it happens in the church. I've mentioned before also that the, the late uh, head of 
TBN, Trinity Broadcasting Network, Paul Crouch, because regularly there were defenders of the faith who were coming out against these guys and saying, wait a minute, they're teaching false doctrine. And millions of people are watching, listening, and buying into it. And Paul Crouch's response was, I'm sick and tired of all this doctrinal doo-doo. That's a direct quote from Paul Crouch. What does that plant in the hearts and minds of gullible people when they hear someone of that prominence refer to doctrine as doo-doo? Our doctrine is the foundation of our faith, the apostles' doctrine. That's what Jude is defending here in his book. That faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. These men did not deliver our faith to us. It was the apostles, the writers of the New Testament. And then I remember back in the early 80s, there was a a minor split within Calvary Chapel. It only involved about 40 churches out of what was probably then close to 1,000 maybe. Uh, But there was a guy that had come into the Calvary Chapel movement named John Wimber. And he was beginning to institute practices in his church that uh, were not in line with what Calvary Chapel believes and teaches, primarily regarding uh, the working of the Holy Spirit. And, um, And so there came a point in time where he would not submit to the authority of Pastor Chuck Smith, and so he decided, in fact, Pastor Chuck suggested that he should, in fact, change the name of his church and go his own way, and he did, and there were about 40 other Calvary chapels that followed him, and that was the beginning of the Vineyard Movement. And John Wimber was very good at coining these catchphrases, just like so many on the liberal side of the secular world, buzz phrases, you know, social justice and so forth, that really capture people's hearts and minds, even though... The underlying truth is not a truth, it's a deception. One of the phrases that John Wimber coined was the phrase, word worshipers. That's one of the phrases that he leveled against Calvary Chapel as he departed, went his own way. He accused Pastor Chuck and those involved with Calvary Chapel of being word worshipers, that we worship the, the Word of God. Instead of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, it was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. And that charge was leveled against us because we believe in the priority of studying the Word of God verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. That doesn't mean we worship the Word of God. We worship the Word, Jesus. But we know that our source of daily sustenance is His Word. But you see how clever and how tricky that is? Oh, I don't want to be a word worshiper. And he was trying to emphasize emotionalism and experiential Christianity over having a a life, a walk, that is firmly rooted and grounded in the truth of God's word. Feelings will deceive you. Emotions will deceive you. The word of God will never deceive you. And we do believe in the moving of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But in the book of Psalms, God says, My word 
have I exalted above my own name. If God puts that high of a priority on his word, should we not do the same? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Not warm, fuzzy feelings, right? Again, feelings come and they go. It's true in our walk with God. It's also true in our marriage. And that's why so many people bail out. When the warm, fuzzy feelings disappear, then they think that's time to call it quits. That's the time that you hunker down, you hang in there, and you really fight. You stay married when you don't feel like it. You stay with God when you don't feel like it. Because it's not based upon your feelings, it's based upon truth. The truth of marriage is it's a, it's a commitment, it's a covenant that's not to be broken, and it's the same thing in our relationship with God. It's a commitment, it's a covenant sealed with the blood of Christ. And you don't break that covenant just because on any given day you're bummed out. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural man or the man without the spirit does not receive or accept the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him nor can he know or understand them because they are spiritually discerned. These men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. And whatever they know or understand naturally, like brute beasts. So I said Jude's taking it up a notch. He's gone from calling them creeps. They've crept in. Now he's calling them brute beasts. Unreasoning animals. So the false teachers, only reasoning was like that of unreasonable animals. Animals operate by and large by instinct, by what comes natural to them. And when we do that as human beings, inevitably it leads to bad things. When we operate by our own natural instincts. Rather than comprehending what was above them, the angels, we saw how they mock celestial beings. They really understood only what was below them, the animals. Remember, antinomianism is an issue here against the law, against God's law. They're saying you can do whatever you want with your body because it's separate from your spirit. The body, the flesh is corrupt anyway, so do what you want, do what you will. I think that's a satanic premise. Do what thou will. Aldous Huxley, maybe. And over here you have the spirit. So you can be spiritual, and then you can be carnal at the same time. That's Gnosticism. That's false teaching. And it had crept into the church in the first century. So in this section, Jude successfully refutes their Gnostic claim. By the way, the word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosko, which means to know. Their claim was... They knew things nobody else knew. And so if you wanted to know those things, you had to hook up with them. That's another mark of every cult group, by the way. We've got secret knowledge and information that you don't have. And if you want it, you're going to have to join up with us. Oh, remember Guyana, the Kool-Aid, David Koresh, many others. Joseph Smith, secret tablets, magic underwear. 
Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? And yet millions of people buy into this stuff. Because, why? Because they've strayed and deviated from the straight truth of God's word. In these things, they corrupt themselves, or these are the very things that destroy them. So they may give an outward appearance of spirituality. They actually operate by carnal, brute instinct, like animals seeking only to gratify their flesh. That's why so often their so-called ministries are characterized by monetary gain. They promise it to you if you will listen to them and follow them, but normally they're the only ones that get rich. Again, the parallel with the secular world. What we really need is socialism. We need to level the playing field, make sure everybody has the same. But in virtually every socialist and communist country, the only ones that have anything are the ones at the very top. Another lie, another deception, antinomianism. You can have all the spiritual perks, but not pay any price in the flesh. Doesn't work that way. There's no free lunch. In their so called understanding, they pollute their own bodies, as we read in verse 8. Like the sin of Sodom, self-destructive. The indulgences of the flesh, which, to which they were very much and are very much dedicated, ultimately lead to destruction, like we talked about a few moments ago. Sin is destructive. It destroys us. God doesn't want to spoil our fun. He wants to save us from destruction. 2 Peter 2, 12 through 14 these, and again, there's so many parallels between the writings of Peter and Jude. They both were on the same page, maybe the same Holy Spirit speaking through both. Not maybe, but we know that. These, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand. Angels, demons, Satan, true spirituality. And will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. This language sounds so harsh because in today's world, people have been conditioned to not stand for any absolutes. Today, everything in our world is debatable, negotiable. There's no black and white. It's all gray. It's all foggy. And so when you do actually read and speak the truth from God's Word, a large majority of people can't handle it anymore. Have you seen that? And so what happens is those who actually stand for the truth, speak the truth, we look like the bad guys. I don't think it was that different in Jesus' day to tell you the truth. We've now moved beyond what I would call the golden age of Christianity where 
a large part of the world was positively impacted by the gospel of Christ. But as we're moving into these last days, we're already here, really. We see that more and more are rejecting this truth and this absolute. And so they flinch. They recoil. They resist. And uh, my wife and I watched that movie Midway. I mean, that's what a great movie. About the Battle of Midway, World War II. And we're watching these guys and gals, and we're, we're talking to each other and saying, man, people just aren't like that anymore. The bravery, the strength, the toughness, it's been beaten out of our society, our culture, verbally browbeaten to the point that nobody has any fortitude anymore, even in the church. They call them the greatest generation, those who fought and died World War II. And you look at that and you can see why. God is calling us in these last days to be bold. That's what he told Joshua. Be bold, be strong, for the Lord thy God is with thee. Do you believe that or not? Okay, then be bold and be strong. Don't back down, don't give in. No matter what. And chances are, you're going to find that more and more, those who identify, remember when I coined that term some while back? We've got people identifying as just about anything and everything now, right? But what they really are? How convenient. Oh, I don't identify as a sinner. I identify as a saint. I identify as a labradoodle. You can identify as anything you want. And there are many who identify as believers, as Christians. But Jesus said, by their fruit you shall know them. And only those who do the will of my Father in heaven will be counted worthy to enter my kingdom. All right, we have another set of threes. We talked about this last time. Jude likes to operate in these triads, these groupings of three. Here's the next one, verse 11. Woe to them, these brute beasts, for they've gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. What does woe to them means? It means they're in big trouble with God. And woe to them who follow them. First of all, the way of Cain is the way of attempting to worship God on your own terms rather than his, which is indicative of what we talked about last week, pride, arrogance, and rebellion, Genesis 4, 3 through 7. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought, notice there's, a, there's another word here with Abel, of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. We're not told with Cain that his offering, first of all, his offering was of the ground, but it, it doesn't say that it was the first fruits. It was just an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. So this was a blood sacrifice, which was a foretelling of the sacrifice of Christ. In the book of Hebrews it says, there's, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So Abel had a spiritual insight here, which Cain 
apparently did not possess or chose to ignore. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And what happened? Cain was humble and repentant. No. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, in other words, if you listen to me, if you humble yourself before me, bring me the kind of offering that I desire and that I deserve, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Sounds like Cain has a choice to make here, doesn't it? A decision to make, as does every human being. Life is all about choices. And no more so is that true than in our walk with God. So the way of Cain was the way of attempting to worship God on your own terms, and that's what so many people in the world today are doing. The Bible says we're created in God's image. Our world today is trying to create God in their image. Cain was more concerned with having the preeminence over his brother. That's what really bummed him out. Abel's offering was accepted and his wasn't. He was more concerned about having the preeminence over his brother than he was with pleasing God. So that's the way of Cain. These brute beasts followed. And then secondly, they've run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. Balaam hired himself out as a prophet. He had a genuine gift, but thought that he could get away with using it for his own financial gain. Numbers 22. Numbers chapter 22. 2 Peter 2.15, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. The error of Balaam is described as the covetousness of one who hires himself to do religious work for personal gain. I remember back in the days, it was a pretty well-known secret. Get it, well-known secret? Uh, that... Pastor Chuck Smith's staff was not paid very well. And why was that? Chuck was trying to train these young men and make sure they were serving God for the right reason rather than paying them oodles of money. And it worked very well. Guys like Greg Laurie, Tom Stipe, different ones, Mike McIntosh, all the ones that you've heard of. That great first generation of leaders within the Calvary Chapel movement all started out cleaning toilets, sweeping the floor, and so forth, as well as doing pastoral duties for very little pay. I remember Tom Stipe used to have to... He had a photography business on the side just to make some extra money to get by on. But it was a very healthy thing. A friend of mine a few years ago, pastor, was interviewing uh, guys, young guys for a possible worship leader position in his church, and he got frustrated and gave up because every young guy that came to interview, the first question out of their mouths was, how much does it pay? Back then, young guys like myself and these other ones that I've mentioned, we were so eager and anxious to be in ministry, we practically would have paid Chuck to be able to do it. And when I was in Colorado, left Costa Mesa, ventured up to Colorado, uh, that's when Tom Stipe was starting his church, Calvary Chapel of Boulder, became Calvary Chapel of Denver. Now it's Crossroads Church of Denver. 
And I was in a music ministry, traveling music ministry, but we'd have periods of time where we were at home, we weren't traveling. And um, I volunteered to help in the church. I'm not bragging, I'm just saying there's a difference between having a heart for ministry and just seeing it as an opportunity for personal gain. Another sign that true revival is taking place, and I don't see that happening right now, to tell you the truth, is when young people are flocking to the ministry regardless of personal sacrifice because they just want to serve God. And not just young people, but older people as well. The Jesus Music Groups, as we called ourselves back in those days, a lot of very talented musicians and singers that came out of the secular music world got saved and saw the music as an opportunity, as a vehicle for evangelism. And so all these Christian bands, singing groups were forming all over Southern California, other parts of the nation as well, but Southern California was a hotbed in the late 60s, early 70s, all the way up through that decade of the 70s. And the vast majority of them would go and sing anywhere that the doors would open just for, to have an offering taken for them. There were a few that kind of rose to the very top and they would be able to ask for some significant honorariums, or as we call them. But the vast majority were living practically really in poverty and doing so happily just to serve God. And God will test us to see if we're doing the right things for the right reasons. I remember Buck Herring, who was the, uh, the overseer of second chapter of Acts. He was married to Annie Herring, the lead singer. And he, uh, we were at a musician's fellowship once up in Hollywood. And Buck was talking about the Holy Spirit. And he goes, the Holy Spirit's what separates the men from the boys spiritually. But I'll tell you another thing that separates the men from the boys, and that is motivation. Are you doing it for God or are you doing it for personal gain? And if you don't believe that there's people out there doing it for personal gain, then you need to wake up. It was, it's been happening since the first century. You ever ask yourself how somebody could be filling a pulpit and not even know God? And by the way, there's a lot of those. They see it as a job, as a profession, as a vocation, a way to earn a living. How many would do it if they weren't getting paid for it. The Bible clearly endorses paying those who serve in the ministry, but that should not be the primary motivation. The error of Balaam. Revelation 2.14, this is the church of Pergamos in the book of Revelation known as the compromising church. Hello? That church is alive and well today. Jesus says, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block or to entice the Israelites to sin. He taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. The error of Balaam. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through... Five, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, 
useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of financial gain. From such, withdraw yourself. We talked last week about their illusions of grandeur. And so then they will seek to milk the body of Christ of large amounts of money and resources so they can build their own earthly empire. We should be all about building the eternal kingdom of God, wouldn't you agree? The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking or material things, but of joy, peace, and righteousness in the Holy Ghost. The third part of James' second triad or trilogy here is that they perished in the rebellion of Korah. The sin of Korah was the rebellion against God's appointed authority, which was Moses. Was Moses perfect? No. David? No. The only perfect man to ever walk this earth was and is Jesus Christ. But Moses was God's appointed leader. Number 16, 1 through 3. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, so he was a Levite, he was one, a member of the priestly tribe, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. And so you can see how people who don't understand submission to godly authority, respect for authority, would see this group, 250 men of renown, leaders, and they would think, wow, this Moses dude, he must be a problem, right? Remember, you know, it's following the majority. I got news for you. A large percentage of the time, the majority isn't right. That's why we have a constitutional republic, a democratic republic, and not a pure democracy. In a pure democracy, everybody gets to vote on everything. It's really not a good idea. We have a representative government where people elect others to represent them. Honestly, that hasn't been going so well lately. But if the majority of the people in our nation... By the way, the majority of the people in our nation got a, never got a chance to vote on abortion. Did you know that? That was a Supreme Court decision with no involvement from the general population. But if the majority of the people in our nation... Now it's kind of about equally split. But if the majority of the people in this nation voted for abortion at every level, no matter what, even post-birth abortion, which is being promoted now. Oops, we messed up. We tried to abort it, but it didn't work. So now what are we going to do? Well, I guess we just don't feed it and we let it die. If the majority of the people in our nation voted for that, would that make it right? If the majority of the people in our nation... By the way, the majority of the people in our nation didn't get to vote on this either. Gay marriage. That was another Supreme Court fiasco, which afterwards then they flew the rainbow flag over the Obama White House. That was pretty disgusting. If the majority of the people in our nation voted for gay marriage, would that make it right? So what does the Bible teach us? The, the apostles before the Sanhedrin, you can't talk about Jesus anymore. Sorry, guys, but we have to obey God rather than men. Right? Just because the majority supports something doesn't make it right. 
We've got 250 guys here trying to take Moses down. So they gathered together, verse 3, against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. This sounds like Bernie Sanders. You'll have to figure that one out for yourself. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Hey, Moses, we're just as spiritual as you are. Who are you to tell us what to do? But then we go down to verse 29 through 33. Moses takes a stand here. He could have wimped out. He said, you know what? You guys are right. Okay, why don't you guys take over and run this thing? Would that have been a good idea? They appeared to be right. They had 250 men of renown standing up against Moses and Aaron. If these men die naturally like all men, uh uh-oh, this is like an Ananias and Sapphira moment coming here. Or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, if they just live out a normal life, then the Lord has not sent me. Man, talk about a gutsy stand. But if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Now it came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart under them. Wow. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households. Here's another thing people don't always stop to consider. Whatever you do is going to affect not only you, but those around you. Oh, well, it doesn't, if I'm not hurting anybody, you know what? That, that just doesn't fly. I don't care. Somebody in your orbit is going to be affected by your decisions and your choices. So when these guys went down, their entire households went with them. And all the men with Korah, so 250 men plus their families, you're probably talking at least 1,000 people or more with all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. I think that means hell. The earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. So God sent Korah and his brood straight to hell. Kind of like a reverse rapture. They did not get to pass go, and they definitely did not collect $200. So in these verses 10 and 11, Jude's given us a second trifecta of examples of God's judgment. Remember, that's the overall scenario here in Jude. He's warning the body of Christ against these creeps. They creep in unnoticed and begin to sow seeds of doubt and discord, false doctrine in the church rebellion against the godly appointed leadership and so forth. False prophets, false teachers, rebellious men who profess to love and follow God, but are really only out for themselves. What's really scary is oftentimes these people are are better at drawing people to themselves. They, They have an appearance of being even more loving, more compassionate, more caring, But really, they're all about themselves, drawing people to them. 
They get their fulfillment from other people needing them. I want you to need God. Sadly, throughout history, and perhaps now more than ever, they lead multitudes of men and women into deception and leave a wake of destruction in their path. I've seen it over the years. When people get involved in these deceptive groups, these cults or cult-like groups led by false teachers, the largest percentage of them crash and burn, and some of them never come back. Once they've been burned, they're so gun-shy, they can't seem to ever get plugged into a good, solid church again. And that's the devil's goal. The devil wants to take you to hell. If he can't because you belong to Jesus, the next best thing is to just wreck you so badly spiritually that you spend the rest of your life as a spiritual cripple, making you ineffective for the kingdom of God here on earth. That's the devil's goal. One or the other, take you to hell, drag you to hell. If he can't, then he wants to just make you miserable to the point that you can't shine your light for Jesus. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jude's warnings are just as relevant today, perhaps even more so as they were 2,000 years ago. We'll continue on in this book of Jude next week. Let's stand. Father God, thank you for your truth, for your word. Lord, we don't worship the written words on the pages, but we do worship the one who is the word, Jesus Christ. We do worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Lord, you said that you've exalted your word above your own name. Therefore, it must be pretty important. Lord, we know that your word is our spiritual food. It is our foundation when our feelings mislead us and betray us and deceive us, our feelings, our emotions, the world, the flesh, and the devil mitigating against us, we know that the thing that keeps us tried and true is standing on the truth of your word. We thank you for your word. Lord, we know that many parts of it are uncomfortable, particularly for those who don't want to follow your word. They don't want to follow your truth. They want to do their own thing. And therefore, they might even represent themselves as being teachers, leaders, prophets. But the fact of the matter is, they're in it for themselves. They're like brute beasts, guided by their own natural instincts. Lord, we don't want to be like that. We don't want to be a part of that. Lord, we know the only thing that can save anyone is the truth. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then he also said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through him. So thank you, God, for, for enlightening us, for opening our spiritual eyes and ears to the truth. Help us never to waver, never to doubt, never to falter, never to give up, never to give in, never to back down, but Lord, to represent you in truth and in love. Lord, above all, you are the God who is love. Help us to 
exude your love to all those around us while at the same time not compromising, loving the sinner but hating the sin. Thank you, God. And we pray in these closing moments for anyone who might need encouragement today. Maybe there's something going on in their lives. They're discouraged. They're downhearted. They're... We ask you to minister to them this morning in these closing moments. For those who are confused, needing guidance, needing direction, Lord, if there's anyone here today that isn't born again, that they would come today and receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. It only takes a moment to yield our lives over to you and to receive the precious gift of forgiveness and salvation and eternal life through Jesus Christ. Lord, some may need healing. We've seen healings here lately. We thank you for that. And we lift up those still in need of healing, like Pastor Skip Heitzig, who's struggling with some brain bleeds. Lord, we ask that you pour out your healing oil upon him and totally heal him and restore him. Lawrence Haramiu, who's just undergone his gallbladder surgery. Lord, there are others. You know who they are. We pray for them that they might be healed, and we pray for anyone here today that needs healing, that they would come and receive that ministry of the laying on of hands. We thank you for this time together today in Jesus' name. Amen.